All right, and welcome back, everybody, to the podcast. This one is for the government class. There is a ton of information to get through in here. It's a very big part of our Constitution and how we do things. So I'm going to get right into it. Instead of having any type of introduction today, we're going to get right into it. So today we're going to be talking about rights of the accused. So this is if you are accused of a crime or anything like that, you have certain rights that go into it. So let's start at the very beginning with what our rights are. The first right that we all have is something called the right of habeas corpus. And essentially what that says is that it is court ordered for the officer holding a prisoner that they be able to explain and state why and show cause as to why this person needs to be arrested and why they cannot be relieved. Habeas corpus is this idea that they can hold on to people. Now, habeas corpus has been challenged many times throughout the history of the United States. It was really big with Abraham Lincoln when he was president. Obviously, with Civil War, he tried to suspend uh, habeas corpus just saying that basically, listen, I don't know who's on my side and who's not. So if you get arrested for a crime, we might as well keep you in. That got overturned. It's gotten overturned time in and time out. Basically, this is the one thing you can rely on the court saying, yeah, habeas corpus, they can't just arrest you and keep you there for whatever reason. And even in 2008, uh, this is the most recent case with it was in a place called Guantanamo Bay, which is actually in Cuba, where we were holding suspected terrorists who were arrested in the Middle East. Even then, it was said that if they are in American custody, they still have constitutional rights, even though they are not American. So it's definitely been one of those things that habeas corpus has really pushed and had a lot of these things going on. Uh, the other, the next part that kind of comes from our constitution and lays out where we should be is that we cannot charge somebody from a crime if that crime was not a crime when they committed the act. So, for example, if we made a law saying it was illegal to sell weed and you get caught, but you got caught before that was a law selling weed, they can't charge you with that crime because it was not a crime at the time. So it's just kind of a it's called a retroactive law. You can't you can't have a law. You can't be charged with a crime if it wasn't there before. This takes us into our next section that goes along within the entire uh, idea of the accused people having rights. This next section is about gr the grand jury and double jeopardy. So a grand jury is made up of citizens, and they hold a proceeding to decide if there is enough evidence for you to go to trial. That is what the grand jury does. Usually there's 16 or 23 people as a part of a grand jury, and what they do, they hear kind of everything. Uh, they hear everything after there is something called an indictment that has been pushed forward. And what the indictment says is that, you know, they're, they want to talk to the grand jury about pressing charges, essentially. So that doesn't mean anything. But then the pressman is the formal accusation brought to the grand jury. And then they kind of decide. And if enough people in the grand jury decide that there is enough evidence to at least take this to trial, they will take it to trial. Now, there are a lot of times in which... An indictment happens, it goes to the grand jury, and there's no charges pressed. This happened recently with the Breonna Taylor situation. 
All those police officers were, were faced in front of a grand jury and they decided to only press charges on one and none of the charges that they pressed, pressed for were murder because there was not enough evidence to guarantee the murder. So the next thing that comes through this is the guarantee of double jeopardy. What guarantee of double jeopardy means, it's pretty simple. Again, all this stuff is pretty basic and straightforward, but double jeopardy is that you cannot be charged for the exact same treat or for the exact same crime twice. So if I murdered somebody in 1981, which is before I was born, so that's how you know this is hypothetical, and I was found innocent or not guilty in that trial, they cannot charge me today for that same murder. This is why most of the times they throw every charge they can at you within a situation so they're not double dipping on any of the stuff and also something they hope will stick in a certain situation like that. But it's also important to remember that a trial that is considered a hung jury, which means there is no verdict, that does not count as one of your jeopardies. You could still then go to retrial for a hung jury and get a new group of people in front of there. That has happened before. That is not double jury or double jeopardy, excuse me. That is just simply put, that is bad luck on your on your case. So now let's talk about when we actually go to trial. There are two things that are guaranteed to us within our Constitution about going to trial. The first one is that you are guaranteed a speedy trial. So they're going to kind of push this through within a reasonable time to make sure it happens. Now, speedy trials have a different kind of definition based on every court system you're in. Usually you can count on it within a year. There's always delays, but those delays kind of go through everything within it okay uh the second part is that it's a public trial but that's also within reason so the public has the right to know what goes on in the trial but they don't have the right to know every little piece every bit and piece and aspect that everything that goes into the trial uh the judge can order that a courtroom is cleared if they feel uh witness tampering or anything of that nature is going on but a lot of times there there is a public a, a public effect to every single trial. You also have the right to a trial by an impartial jury of your peers, which again is the people you may know around you that kind of really pushes this out. It's guaranteed, but it can also be denied. What I mean by that is a defender, the person who's being in charge, they can say, I don't want a trial jury. And in that situation, everything goes to what is called a bench trial in which a judge makes all that decision. All right, I know this is a lot of information coming at you real quick, but our next one comes down to the right to an adequate defense. Essentially, you have the right to a lawyer in every case, even if you cannot afford one. So... The Sixth Amendment gives this right, and this is how it's broken down, that uh, the lawyer will be informed of the nature and the cause of the accusation, confronted with the witnesses against them, and question them in open court. Again, that's a lawyer thing, not something that we necessarily have the tools as regular, not saying regular people aren't smart, but I wouldn't know the questions to ask somebody to try to to win over a jury. That's why we allow these things. Uh, You also have the chance to have them look over all the information so they can really, really help them. And this has gone into court because for a lot of reasons, obviously, but really it's just to protect our liberties. It's again, to protect you just because you're accused of a crime does not mean you are not a part of the United States and you're not a part of the situation. I need to move on though, because I'm already uh, running out of time on this and one more halfway through. The next thing that we got to do, we got to guarantee uh, against self-incrimination. So basically, 
the purpose of this isn't saying they're going to ask you a question that you're going to guarantee to you know, make the case easier for it. But in a criminal case, the burden of proof relies on the prosecution. It is up to the people who are accusing you of crime to prove that you have committed that crime. It is not up to the people who have who are being accused. You are innocent until proven guilty. If we are flipping the switch and allow and trying to get self-incrimination, that switches the burden of proof. And that's why it's really underneath things. So you can ultimately plead the fifth in any situation that you need to in anything like that. And also to go along with that, you cannot be forced to confess if they use any type of torture, uh, physical or psychological pressure on you. That has been proven over and over and over again. That brings us to our Miranda rights, which is also a part of our Fifth Amendment, in which say you have the right to remain silent. Anything you can't can't say and Anything you say can and will be used against you in the court of law. You have the right to consult an attorney and have an attorney present while you are being questioned. If you cannot afford to hire a lawyer, one will be appointed to represent you before any questions. If you wish, you can decide at any time to exercise these rights and not answer any questions or make a statement. Really what comes out of this is that you can't just get arrested and not know what you're being talked to about, not know your rights. They have to lay that out for you and... It continues that. Now, what they have changed about this is that if you are going to remain silent, you need to tell uh, whoever's questioning you that you are going to remain silent. This leads us into bail and preventive detention. Obviously, there are limits on bail. They cannot give excess, uh, excess bail to people, but that is always up for leeway because some people don't know what that is. It has to be reasonable, but what is reasonable, it becomes a big thing. Usually you only have to pay 10% of the bail to do it. Bail is this idea that you pay money to guarantee that you will show up if you want that money back. That is the idea behind bail. There's also something in there called preventive detention. And essentially what that said is a federal judge can order that an accused be held without bail if there's good reason to believe that he or she will commit another serious crime before trial. This was used against Aaron Hernandez, the former tight end of the New England Patriots, who murdered a couple of people, and they weren't really sure if he was going to go out and try to strike again. So they shut it all down really quickly by saying, listen, you can't. You're just, we're going to keep you in. Some people say it's unconstitutional, but it has been held up within our courts throughout a lot of times. Cruel and unusual punishment is pretty straightforward. We're going to take a big look at that as we talk about capital punishment and treason. Capital punishment is one of the biggest debates in our country. And the reason why it is such a big debate is because it is proven time and time again that the people who get executed are people who don't have a lot of money and they cannot afford how this is done. So at one point, the death penalty was actually ruled unconstitutional, but it was ruled unconstitutional because of who was being executed. So that's the important thing to realize is that who was being executed is what set it up. It said there was clearly a racial bias and all these things. So they set up all these new procedures to go about it so that basically it becomes more fair. Because of this, in 1997, 265 people were given death sentences throughout the country. In 2012, only 77 were. There's been just a huge drop in all of these. Uh, between 1976 and 2003, there were 1,300 people executed and only 143 won their appeal. So it's just, you know, it's one of those debates that we have throughout every single uh 
throughout, throughout all the time is should the death penalty be legal or not legal? Some states have laid out these crimes are what death penalty crimes are. These crimes are not. And other states have done kind of pretty much anything they can to change the perspective of what they are doing. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out. Have a good rest of your day.